Liam, thank you, buddy. Thank you, brother in Christ, for uh, sharing your gift with us. Uh, We see the two truths of those two songs, both come all ye faithful that we know so well, believers coming to behold Jesus, that's what we do in this season all year round. But we also saw in our uh, congregational song that even believers, the faithful, we're not perfect. We don't have everything together. We're not sinless. And so at the same time, the faithful come, but at the same time, we come, all ye unfaithful. Meaning, this season, this gospel, this Christmas is not for people who have it all together, not for perfect people, but for, for sinners needing a Savior, both the faithful and the unfaithful. What a great time to start off and to sing before we get here into the worship through the Word. And let's go before the Lord now in prayer before our time digging in to the Scriptures together. Pray with me, church. Father, we come to you humbly as your people, as believers, but we recognize even that we need you and we need your son because we're unfaithful. We couldn't figure it all out. We couldn't and can't save ourselves. Our hope is in you, not in ourselves, not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory. We give you Glory, we're here for you. We pray, O Lord, that you'd encourage us in your word. As the general of believers, as the king, as the Lord, we submit to you and what you might reveal to us today in your word. Help us all to have hearts attuned to what you might open up to us today in your word. And help me be faithful to preach what you revealed Not my thoughts, but your thoughts from your word. We say this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Pastor Wood just did a really nice job, didn't he? Leading us in our Advent reflection on peace. But what if I followed up that to say that Jesus didn't come to bring peace in all situations. Sure, he brought peace, didn't he, with us and the Father through his obedient sacrifice on the cross. But for others, you see, who are not his people, who are not his sheep, he brings the opposite of peace. The scriptures reveal that, even our passage today. He brings strife, division, and even hostility with those who are against his ways. Now you might say, Pastor, that's not a very attractive message. Why can't we just say that God is just happy about everyone and everything and has a wonderful plan for everyone? Why are you bringing this negative stuff in here? Why can't we just keep it light and feel good during this joyful, and it is, Christmas season? Well, I, I could say that. That God is just kind of for everyone and everything, and everything's going to be nice and good for everyone all the time. 
But if I said that, I'd be lying to you. And I'm not going to do what even many pastors deploy in an ear-tickling tactic. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to just give you happy, clappy, sentimental. I can't do that. If we just think about Jesus' sermon right here that we're in alone, we can put an end to all that spiritual-sounding kind of nonsense, if you will, that people try to peddle for popularity and feel good sentimentality, nostalgia, things of that nature. The sermon here that we've been seeing in Matthew chapter 10 for the last several weeks is this personalized homily for his 12 apostles. He preached it directly to them before he sent them out about their mission in a fallen world. And as we've been seeing, did Jesus say that when they went out into the mission field to the harvest, that they would be welcomed and showered with praise and gifts by all. Everyone would be bubbly. Everyone would be happy. Everything would be peaceful. Everything would be okay. Is that what Jesus has revealed to us in Matthew 10? No, it's not. Not at all. Picture this, okay, here. Picture the ear-tickling pastor of the time of Jesus. If he got wind that the Messiah himself would be near the area that he was ministering to, where his people were at. Bear with me, okay, in this illustration. I know uh, there were no pastors or local churches scattered around like that at the time uh, because the the church was yet to be established in that way. But just by way of illustration, hopefully, hopefully you're with me, you get the picture. Some religious leader reaches out to Jesus and has him scheduled to preach the next service. He even tells Jesus that with such late notice, he can just preach the last sermon he had already completed and given. And in the pastor's usual advertisement, he says to his congregation, come and hear Jesus. He is going to tell us all how to live the fulfilled life or how to live your best life now. Come, come and hear him. It's going to be great. The people show up in droves to hear Jesus. And he preaches this lesser-known second sermon on missions that he had delivered to his disciples. We all know the Sermon on the Mount. This is the second sermon in the book of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 10. But it's on missions and what's going to happen. He tells the crowds as they were in record attendance, eager to hear him. He tells the crowds, what does he tell them? That those of you who are true believers here. Listen up here. And he starts right off with his first point. You will be vulnerable sheep among ravenous wolves who are licking their chops to devour you. That's how he starts a sermon. We saw that before. Point number two. You will be flogged in houses of worship, kidnapped and dragged before the authorities to be questioned with your life on the line. Oh, this is getting good. Hopefully everybody's excited about this. Point number three. Betrayed even by your own family. Hated by the majority. And henceforth kicked out of many towns that you visit. Now all who want to join the church, come forward now for invitation. (laughs) That summary pretty much catches us up in this sermon before we hear its end today at the end of the chapter. 
we've seen the gospel farmers sent out and that the persecution that was going to be ahead for them. And now we're going to see at the end of the sermon in chapter 10, exclusive discipleship. To see that Jesus calls his disciples, which includes you here, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, Jesus calls Christians to prioritize him over families, friends, and even our very lives. Let's see it from the text in our first point. And number one, Jesus above family. Look with me now at Matthew 10 and verses 34 through 37. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Having a conversation with Daryl Critton this past week as he was out helping set up and, and dig for the sign and prepare for the sign. Having a conversation about this very topic that many people have the priorities in their life, the stereotypical priorities. Most would say, what would they say? God first, then family, work, etc., etc., right? But do most people actually believe that? Do most people actually live that? Do you? You can say God first, God first, God first, all day long, but when you are pressed with God versus, say, your own flesh and blood family members, are you really living God first while in reality holding them in higher esteem and regard and priority if you're really honest? Where you at? Is God really first? Are you willing to Obey God even over your family, and even if your family was against your God. Do you have a heart that is first in priority with our great God? And since we're in the uh, holiday spirit and Christmas season, it reminds me of a sermon I preached on John three sixteen through 21 during the Christmas season at Marietta Valley Church in California, which, as many of you know, was the pastor that I served at before coming to Gallatin. We know the song played around Christmas time each and every year. The very happy and gleeful, lighthearted and nostalgic, have a holly, jolly Christmas. It's the best time of the year. Oh, by golly, have a holly, jolly Christmas this year. You're singing it, and it's stuck in your head all day. I'm sorry. But Jesus did not come to the earth to create a bonfire and have everyone sing kumbaya. He did not set up a table and begin baking Christmas cookies and drinking eggnog. Now, that actually sounds like a lot of fun. We do that kind of thing in our house, but that's just not what Jesus did. Let's be clear. In fact, 
Instead of a holly jolly Christmas, Jesus brought to the world a holly jolly polarizing Christmas, which was the title of my sermon I preached years ago at MBC. Polarizing. Is that something that you describe Jesus as in your mind? Did we see it right there in our text in chapter 10 and verse 34? The most apparent, the almost apparent contradiction to what we saw in our Advent reflection on peace that Wood did so well, Jesus says, I have not come to bring peace, what, but a sword. That is polarizing the division. You see it. We see that Jesus did not bring peace among all mankind, one with another, with each other, but he brings, of course, peace with God, and those who have peace with God aren't promised, I hope we can see it clearly from the Bible, our best life now, but persecution, divisions with their own family, with unbelieving family members even out to persecute and kill some believers in some situations as we saw last week. This passage shows how Jesus really is polarizing. Son against father, daughter against Mother, even daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Enemies in the household. Jesus warns about this. And when push comes to shove, and those of us who are disciples of Christ and wanting to follow Jesus, he reminds us all about the real cost of discipleship. To follow Jesus is not some lighthearted, Holiday song, it's a calling to a devotion to Jesus even above your own flesh and blood family. And if you aren't willing to choose Jesus over your spouse or kids or parents or in-laws, then you aren't worthy of bearing the name disciple or follower of Christ because disciples put Jesus as number one even over their beloved family. You say, not worthy? Not worthy? That's strong. Are you saying that I'm not a believer if I choose family over Jesus? That's not what I'm saying. It's what Jesus said. See it again in verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Of me. Do you love God, church? Are you willing to follow Jesus in an exclusive, single minded direction and way, forsaking all other allegiances and putting Christ first? All other primary allegiances. This doesn't mean that we disrespect our families or, you know. Jesus teaches about how we should honor our families and these types of things, but. Where's the primary allegiance? Who's first? Jesus is calling us to exclusive discipleship. Do you see that? Where are you all at in this? Be honest with yourself because God knows exactly where you're at. You can't hide it from him. When persecution comes because of Jesus, even amongst your family, do you side with him against the kids? Do you? Or do you wholeheartedly choose Man or family over 
God, where are you in this? Where are your allegiances? Did you know that the beloved John 3.16 that we all know so much about with God's loving the world, sending his son to the world, which if you read that passage, I want you to think about Christmas. We oftentimes don't think about Christmas, but the see, you see the sending of the son is seen in the birth of Jesus in the manger, which we celebrate here during Christmas. He sent his son. But did you know that that beloved passage that we all know so much that gives us the warm fuzzies, and it does, and it should, that's what a wonderful passage, is followed up in verse 19 with these sober words. Listen to them. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. And does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Do you see the polarizing Christmas and polarizing Jesus right there in the context of this most famous passage that everyone knows in John 3.16? Not everybody responds to Jesus in the same way. Some people love and worship and go to him and love the light. And some people hate Jesus, want nothing to do with it. They're, they're repulsed by the light. The light comes and they're like a, this cockroach running away from the light. They'd rather be in the dark. Jesus is light, though, divides some who hate the light, and others who love it. We see it. Do you see that conflict amongst different polarizing responses to Jesus in our day and age, maybe even in your families? Do you see it? It's no wonder that we saw in our passage today that Jesus does not bring peace to the earth but a sword. A 60s, talking about 1960s, bearded, drugged-out cult leader, might try to have everyone hold hands and get in a circle and sing peace and let's sit in peace. Let's all just have peace in that way. But Jesus is not like that for more than one reason. I hope you can see he's not like that. He brings not peace to families and peace with those on earth that have not trusted him, but a sword. Of course, to clarify here, A sword does not mean the physical sword of judgment and militaristic war. Jesus tells Peter to put down the sword and not defend him. He's not trying to create this vigilante army war or anything like that. Christianity doesn't bring the sword in in a kind of theocratic judgment like maybe Islam. We see in Islam in certain countries today. That's not what it's getting at. No, this sword is a sword of division between believers and unbelievers. Do you see that? Many Christians, many here in this room, have experienced that division with unbelieving family members, and that is exactly what Jesus is anticipating here and and pointing to here. And he wants us to be following him primarily. He's not interested in his disciples dividing themselves between devotion to him and a kind of greater devotion even to family ties. But he calls us all to exclusive discipleship that does not share allegiances in terms of the top, in terms of the primary priority with anyone or anything else. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except what? Through me. 
That means, to those who've never put this together, maybe some here in this room, that the exclusive way, the only way to heaven and the only solution to all mankind is Jesus alone. There's no other inclusive way. There's no other saviors. There's no other way to heaven. The road is narrow, as Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount. He's just repeating that here. Any kind of come one, come all. We want all unbelievers to hear the gospel and come to faith, but we're not going to say it in such a way that says, well, yeah, you could get saved in that religion over there. Oh, you can get saved in that uh, unbelieving lifestyle over there. No, we're asking people, we're calling people, we're pleading with people, we're proclaiming to people to come to Jesus alone. It's exclusive discipleship. He's the only way. But as we'll see here in this text, Jesus doesn't call us to devotion to him over and above our earthly families. He ramps it up and he ramps up the stake even more as we see here in point number two, Jesus above our life itself even. And let's see it in the next two verses here in Matthew 10, 38 through 39. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see the apparent contradiction there? You'd think that those who value their lives would protect it at all costs and all circumstances, right? That's true in most instances, even for Christians. For Christianity is not proposing a kind of unwise, vigilante carelessness that has the attitude, who really cares whether I live or, or, or whether I die? Who cares about my life? My life is purposeless. Meaning, That's not what's being revealed here. Christianity is not careless about the value of their lives. Believers should value their lives. But it sees, you see, Christ as a higher value even than our own health, well-being, and survival. Do you see that? Remember, this is all in the context of persecution that the 12 apostles were going to face, that he warns them about. Remember, the most of all of them, most of them died because of their faith in Christ, because they were Christians, they were killed, they were martyred, they gave up their lives for the cause of the gospel in Christ. Their lives were cut short from a human perspective because of their allegiance Christ. They certainly valued their lives, but they valued Jesus more. Do do you value Jesus more? That is what Christ's call to discipleship is for each and every one of us here in this room. Not only exclusive as the only way to salvation, but exclusive as even more valuable than protecting our physical lives. Like the perspective from Martin Luther's hymn we saw last week, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. That's a kind of willingness to choose Jesus over life itself. They can take our lives, but the word of the Lord abides forever. And our witness 
in the face of death for those faithful few believers who are faced with this dire situation, our witness will bear testimony to a watching world of the power of the cross, the priority of Jesus, even over threats of our own lives. You think how powerful that is that someone would follow Jesus even to death? It's an amazing testimony. The blood of martyrs speaks of a greater purpose than even the preservation of life itself. If Jesus was killed bodily, you better believe that some of his people, his sheep, Christians, will be killed bodily as well. But the body they may kill, as we know. There's something more important than our physical survival. And that is allegiance and devotion to Christ over our very own lives. That's ultimately what taking up our cross means. Now, sadly, some have trivialized this context. They have said, well, it's my cross to bear, talking about some silly thing. But if we just realized what the cross represented, and I want us to realize that, we might take it a little more seriously. John Carson, a pastor, provocatively wrote, die to self, take up the cross. Today, it would be, on that, on that similar theme, take up the gas chamber or take up the electric chair. He, he says that we wear cross earrings and cross necklaces, but what if we started wearing miniature gas chamber earrings or electric chair necklaces? He says that would more fully capture the essence of what Jesus was saying here. You see it? Pastor Corson goes on to say, we sing the hymn, there's room at the cross for you. But what if we sang, there's room in the gas chamber for you? You see, the cross has lost its impact because it's so familiar. But these people at that time who heard Jesus say, if you want to come after me, you've got to take up the cross. It would be like us hearing, if you want to follow me, you must take up the electric chair and die in a degrading kind of death. The cross is no easy, lighthearted, happy-go-lucky, oh, by golly, have a jolly good time and holly jolly Christmas. That's not what the cross is, is it? It's a tool of execution that Jesus took up for us and our salvation. He went to the cross knowing what it was, which is why he sweat drops of blood in the garden, anticipating this terrible experience that he knew was ahead of him. It was not an easy thing that Jesus did in taking up his cross, but he did it anyways. He took our punishment on that tree. And we owe everything to a Savior like that, don't we? He saves his people from their sins. He saves you from your sins. He saves me from my sins, truly, through the work of Christ. He saved us all through that bloody, torturous cross, that execution tool. He saved us through that. But he calls us, you and I, if we're believers, as followers of him, to take up our cross, not to earn salvation, not at all. Don't, don't get it wrong here. And, and not even a willingness to die for Christ's sake can earn anyone forgiveness of sins. That, that's an impossible. That's not how we're saved. No way is this pointing to a kind of a works boasting kind of, look at how dedicated I am. I even go 
to death, and that's how I'm going to get saved. Not at all. This is not salvation by martyrdom, as one pastor helpfully clarified. But this is exclusive discipleship, following Jesus as committed disciples, even to our very deaths because of him, if we're called to that, due to our allegiance to him and love for him. I want us to see that we'll have strength that we might also find in him in those times as we saw last week. No one could do that without God's help. No one. It's impossible. Neither you or I could do that without God's help. And there's certainly lesser applications of cross-bearing that would relate, of course, to the day-to-day lives that we live, even being willing to face lesser forms of persecution, like maybe being unpopular in the eyes of the world or the eyes of your family, the eyes of your children or spouse, uh, maybe being unpopular because of Jesus. But since the cross is literally the instrument of Jesus' future death that he will go to later, as we'll see later in this book, the disciples, even if they didn't fully grasp it all right here and now, certainly later made that connection when Jesus took up that cross for them, for us, for our salvation. And quite movingly, really, really kind of just struck by this as I've been thinking about it this past week and last month in preparation, some of his disciples who were listening to this very personalized sermon of Jesus to them would physically also have to take up literal crosses in their future martyrdom. Oh, wouldn't you think that these words would be relevant, practical direction and help in terrible times like that? And if you're here today and you want the key to a happy life, if you want your best life now, you need to be able to live with faith in light of this paradox that we're seeing here, the apparent contradiction, that those of us who want to truly find our lives and live our lives to the fullest must be willing to lose them for Christ's sake. I said it's not easy, but a true child of God will not only pick up, pick Jesus before family, but Jesus even before their very own lives. Are you a true child of God? If that's you, if so, give him your whole life and follow him, placing him above it. This leads us now to our third and final point. And number three, Jesus above friends, above family, above life, and now above friends. Look with me in your Bibles now, Matthew 10, verses 40 through 42. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is righteous receives a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. We might as well throw in chapter 11 and verse 1 as well because in this context, he's concluding the service or in this sermon here in chapter 11 and verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, you see how personal this teaching was? He went 
on from there to teach and preach in their cities. It's fitting that Jesus ends his sermon to the limited audience of his 12 disciples. He ends it with, once again, a charge for their protection and good and acceptance. It's what he wanted for them. Jesus is not happy when people persecute his 12 apostles. We saw it through chapter 10 here. Or any other disciples, for that matter. It's not some sick kind of pleasure out of people hating Christians and killing them that that Jesus has here. I want to be clear here. Though he knows of that very real and imminent danger, which is why he warns them and even equips them and gives them a strategy and gives them comfort to deal with this really difficult present danger and opposition and severe persecution that's coming to them. He warns of those who would oppose their message. So he tells them to dust off their feet, remember, and leave after going away from houses of people who do not accept their message and accept them. Tells them to flee from city to city when they're opposed. Not to unwisely just get themselves killed at first sign of conflict. Go out and if this town persecutes you, just stick around and just keep doing what you're doing until they kill you. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. We saw that, right? Go to the next and go to the next because there's a mission that has to go out. There's a mission for his disciples to go forward. And Jesus blesses and commends and even rewards those who treat these 12 apostles well, and he brings judgment on those who treat him poorly, as we've seen. We saw this, right? The wicked Sodom and Gomorrah will have it better in hell, it says, if that's even possible. It says it'll be better for them than these haters who oppose the disciples in their gospel ministry. We saw that. But do you see this here? Jesus sets the agenda for who we are to befriend and who we are to support and love. Do you see that implication from this text? The towns that rejected these 12 apostles were judged for not befriending and supporting and loving these sent out gospel farmers. Jesus tells us who to receive love and support for. He cares about that. He gives that direction. He tells us who our friends should be. We might think, I choose my friends. I decide who I love and support and affirm. But if you are a believer, you know that your affections and standards of what you support has changed after you've been converted to Christ. It was different. As an unbeliever, you may have supported the most vile things and and encouraged the most vile people, but as a believer, it changes, doesn't it? What, What we esteem, what we put forward, what we encourage, it changes. What you encourage reveals about where your allegiances are. While you may even once might have supported godless false teachers, for instance maybe even in other churches you might have attended before you were converted or things of that nature. Think about it. There are some preachers in churches that if we were to give our consent and support of it and befriend, so to speak, that we would be in grave danger of disobeying God and befriending his enemies, not his friends. It's a dangerous thing to do. Think of all the pastors, for instance, in our day who promote sexual immorality publicly. Encourage it, pursue it, and and tell others to pursue it too. Or who promote and advise and counsel the murder of unborn babies. Ministers supposedly, pastors supposedly 
doing that kind of thing and, and teaching and promoting all types of heretical doctrines. They're out there. You don't want to support that. You don't want to invite those guys in. You don't want to befriend them. You don't want to listen to them. You don't want to go to their churches. Not at all. And, and if you do, you would be becoming friends with people that God tells you to turn away from. So God has authority, Christ has authority to point to us who we should support, who we should love, who we should follow, who we should befriend. So we don't want to pursue those things negatively, but on the flip side, we have the problem of faithful ministers of the gospel and missionaries, for instance, or let's just take these 12 apostles that is the context of our text, and you have them faithfully pouring out their hearts in ministry, but it's met, you see, by disregard and opposition, we see that here. What does Jesus say in order to side with them and against those who withhold support, love, and friendship with them? He tells them to, to support these good gospel farmers, these good gospel ministers, befriend them, support them. And he says that if you don't, it's going to be worse than even the most sexually vile and immoral abomination of those in Sodom and Gomorrah. This is a big thing. And he says positively here, there will be a reward in heaven for those who happen to support these 12 gospel farmers or apostles instead of rejecting them. And I think that that continues on into the future when people, Christians, support rightly godly Christian teachers and preachers and ministers and reject those who teach falsehood. And did you know that even a small act of giving a cold cup of water was seen as a great act of love and support that to the disciples, if, they did, if people did that, that would be reported in heaven. So just as there are, are de- degrees of judgment, as we saw the week comparing Sodom and Gomorrah with these towns rejecting them, remember it's going to be worse for you, worse for you than, than for them. We also see rewards here given by God to these supporters of genuine gospel ministry. And, and this is not new, as we saw Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 6 talk a lot about rewards in heaven. This passage reminds me of the future judgment that we read about later in this book in Matthew 25. Scott Ernest preached a helpful sermon on this some time ago, and you see the the echoes in this passage to chapter 25. In that future judgment, some are thrown into perdition because they did not treat Christians well. Did you know that? Remember the separation of the sheep and the goats? And they, they say this, when, hopefully you could recall, when did I feed you? And when did I give you something to drink, Jesus? He says, I tell you the truth, this is all loose here. What you did for one of the least of these, you did for me. You see the similar topic? We must befriend and support and show acts of love to other true Christians. And when we do that, we are in essence loving and serving Christ himself because of his close identification with his people. Do you see how much Jesus cares for Christians, for us? Oh, this is so helpful for us to see. If you decide to befriend and support godless wolves, for instance, you will be judged. And if you decide to betray and not befriend and show kindness and practical acts of love, like maybe even giving a cold cup of water to, to his, his disciples, to other Christians, if you don't do that, then you'll also be judged. Both of those things are wrong. We all need to align ourselves with friendship with God's people. Not our people primarily, but God's people primarily. 
Your people, if you're a Christian, should be God's people, right? And if you're a Christian, his friends should be your friends. And they are. If you're a Christian, you, you know what that looks like. You know the fellowship that you have with other believers, genuine believers. Do you see what Jesus is getting at here about him setting the standard for, for who we support, who we befriend and things of that nature? Now, church, I realize that all of this in this section of Scripture is really hard because it is. It could seem hard because it is hard. All of this can seem quite exhausting if we just really think about it. Jesus above family, our lives, our friends, it seems like a huge commitment because it is a huge commitment. But we don't do it in our own strength and power. I hope you see that. We do it as transformed children of God who have the Holy Spirit residing in us, transforming us and changing us. Consider even the example that Jesus set for us in this. Don't look to yourself. Don't depend on your own abilities because you'll mess it up. I'll mess it up. We will mess it up. But think of Jesus. When it comes to doubt and we feel the pressure, we might fold. The Christian life gets so hard and it could seem just like abandoning it might seem better. Remember Jesus, church. Even in those times when those hard decisions between choosing him, even over our beloved family, remember Jesus, church, who loved us as Christians, his disciples, and prioritized us even more than his own biological family. Remember, he says, these are my brothers and my mother and my sister. Remember his identification with believers, even over his family? Remember Jesus when we feel like we might buckle under the weight and pressure of persecution like Peter did. Remember him who loves us more than his own very life itself and gave it up in an excruciating way for us and for our salvation like a lamb to slaughter. He went willingly. Why? Because of his love for you. Remember Jesus. And when we wonder who we should befriend in a fallen world with all kinds of people vying for our time and attention and support, Remember Jesus, church, who paid the ultimate price and gave up his life for his friends. Remember Jesus. He would even go so far as making his enemies his friends by his death on the cross. So that even though the world does not have peace with God due to the rejection of the light, we as Christians might truly have peace with God through our loving relationship with Christ, even though prior to that, prior to God's work in our lives, we were but enemies of his. So really, I want to leave us with, I want to have us remembering as we go into our fellowship potluck meal today, I want to leave us with remembering Jesus. Church, remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful 
that you have not only pointed us towards how you would have us live, but you also demonstrated to us the Christian life through Jesus and his life and his work and all that he did. Lord, help us all today. Help us all to remember your son. When it gets difficult, when we grow weary and tired, help us not grow weary in doing good. When we get fearful and worry for fear of man, help us to see the greater fear of you that we would seek to obey and love and devote our lives to you and your son, even over family itself, even over all the whole world, even over our very lives. Would you help us with these things because they're impossible without you. We need your help. Point us to you. Help us to see where the good life really is. Help us to see what we should be pursuing. We ask all these things in the strong name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.